Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, that would be great because I know you all will and you all will follow along. Uh, We have some good stuff to get into today, but before we do, I do want to mention something. Uh, We began to mention, I think last week or the week before, that we have a missions trip coming up end of January, about January 21st, I think. They're going to be heading out through early February, coming home on like the 2nd or 3rd, actually maybe even the 4th of February. And uh, if you are unfamiliar with our situation in South Africa, there's Regions Beyond Churches there, which is the network we belong to. Uh, We are friends with a man named Paul Simpson there who oversees uh, a lot of churches in South Africa, uh, Tanzania, uh, I think Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Anyway, Paul is one of the most prolific church planner, planners and people that raises leaders that I know on the planet. And I've gotten to know him on several trips to, you know, in Dubai, South Africa, uh, Greece, different places that I've been with Paul. And we're going to serve him by helping them move into a honey factory that is being converted into a church. And Paul has moved to this town himself. He's brought a team of about 30 people with him. And uh, it's being converted to a church, and they're going to launch while we are there. So that last Sunday that we are there in South Africa, we'll be joining the church there for their launch, as well as helping with a training center that's nearby where Paul is raising leaders and training teams as they come in, both long-term and short-term, there nearby. So if you have wanted to do a missions trip, this is an opportunity that uh, I would highly recommend. Uh, It's not going to be... Uh, starving to death in the jungle somewhere. It's going to be, but it's going to be challenging on some levels as well. So it's, it is going to be really healthy. We want to continue to network and partner with Paul. I was talking to Paul on the phone the other day, hoping to have him here sometime this next year, and then you will get to hear some of why I'm so excited about what Paul does. If you have questions about that, see me, or if you know Owen and Becky Voigt, see them. They will be leading that team as they do every year to South Africa. So that opportunity is coming, uh, and my friend Josh from Missoula, who leads the church, Regions Beyond Church in Missoula called Revive, just got back from Mexico, and we've been networking with a group of churches there, so we're going to have a lot of opportunities for Mexico, it sounds like, this next year as well. So get your passport, save your money, because we've got places to go and things to do for the sake of the gospel around the world. It's exciting. Uh, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Did everybody get full? Are you still full? You're full of something. All right. How about happy end of, end of hunting season? I thought I'd hear a few more than that. All the hunting widows or widowers quite happy to be having their spouses back after this weekend. Uh, we're going to be talking about prayer today. You know, hopefully you did you pray over your turkey? Did you pray that your turkey would taste good? Did your family gather and say grace? Uh, It's a great time. The holidays are a great time to stop and give thanks to God on Thanksgiving and during the Christmas season to pray, to bring our requests before God, to come before Him, to ask Him, to seek Him. Maybe you were praying for your friends and family that are far away. Maybe you're praying for your meal. Maybe you'll be doing a lot of that over the holidays. When we concluded our series, Inner Being, a couple weeks ago, a series on mental health we just finished, 
one of the responses that I talked about was a response of prayer. And I barely brushed on it, and I thought, boy, it would be a good thing to talk about this subject of prayer. It doesn't sound like rocket science, but maybe as we unpack some of these things, you'll see there's quite a bit to it. And there's very strong indication that prayer ought to be a part of your daily life and my daily life, something that we do all the time, constantly bringing ourselves before God. I ended with this scripture out of James chapter 5, verse 16, when I was talking about prayer a couple weeks ago, a great passage to consider Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Therefore, confess your sin and pray. There's a lot of power with the things that we say. We could talk today about the power of your words. And how important they are. We confess our sin. We talk about what's going on in our lives. We bring it before others because it's healthy to bring things into light. And what do we do with it? We pray. We bring it before God, not just each other. And we ask, God, heal us in this situation, whether it be forgiveness of sin or actual things we need healed from in the physical or emotional realms. That's why we talked about that with mental health. We need to be bringing our lives before God on a regular basis, asking for His intervention and His guidance and His hand to be a part of our lives. How do we do that? We ask. We pray. Prayer is important, and our words are important, and so we need to be speaking to God as well as one another. But there's this funny little caveat at the end of that passage. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Oh, oh, a righteous person. Okay, I'm not one of those. I'm not a righteous person. I have reason to believe that my prayer won't be heard because I'm not righteous. Well, I have good news for you today. You don't have a righteousness that's yours. You don't own a righteousness that you earned. You don't own a righteousness that you achieved with your good deeds. You have a righteousness that was given to you as a gift of Jesus Christ. That's what's so important and powerful about what Jesus did. In laying down his life on our behalf, he became our righteousness. And so when God looks at our little feeble human, measure up. But when he see, looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ if we've given our lives to him. So we do have righteousness on our side. We can be confident, though, that although I'm not a righteous person, I have a righteousness through Jesus Christ that was bought for me and my prayer can be heard. We are all called to pray. And it's part of who we're who we are in Christ. When I start talking about a particular subject in the scripture, oftentimes there's one way of if looking at the scripture, studying it, you can say, well what about prayer? And there's one thing that we talk about called the law of first mention. If there's a theme throughout scripture, an understanding that we see there, where do we see it first mentioned? Where does this theme begin in the Bible? When we look at Genesis chapter 4, we see that Seth had a son. Who was Seth? Seth was the son of Adam and Eve. After Cain killed Abel, Seth was born, and Seth was a righteous man, and his descendants followed God, unlike Cain. 
And this is Seth's son, and his name is Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you have to think about these circumstances. What's the time frame that these guys are living in? The fall of man has just happened. Seth's parents were Adam and Eve. They just witnessed sin coming into creation. They were a part of it. And they saw the separation of the relationship between God and man. God walked with man in the garden, remember. But when sin occurred and the separation happened between man and God, God kicked man out of the garden. Surely Seth and certainly Enosh and their descendants had immediate stories coming down through the family of the days when they walked with God, of what it was like in the garden before the fall of man. I could comprehend and imagine that as God separated Himself from man in this time frame, they began to realize His absence and they began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call upon? They were crying out to Him. They were bringing things before Him. They were asking Him for intervention. They were praying. They were invoking, which we will look at in a minute. They were calling upon His name, appealing to His authority. And this is the first time we see this, and then we see this start to develop throughout Scripture, where man is calling upon God. He's speaking out to Him. He's speaking His words and hoping that a God in heaven will hear Him and respond to his prayer. There's some interesting facts about prayer in the Bible. This is um, from a group called the Gospel Coalition. I did not look these up because there are 650 prayers listed in the Bible. There are about 450 recorded answers to prayer, which I felt like was pretty good odds. Garth Brooks' song, Unanswered Prayers, got nothing on this. Jesus prays about 25 different times during his earthly ministry. Paul mentions prayer in its variety 41 times. What do we see in the Scripture? If I see 450 prayers being answered, if I see Jesus praying repeatedly throughout his short time of ministry, If I see Paul constantly encouraging us to pray, what logical conclusion do I come to? I should pray. Prayer is a part of my life. Prayer is a part of my relationship with God. Prayer is something that God invites me to do, and He's made a way for me to do. It's something that matters. My prayers matter in the big scheme of things. We really see that picture painted well for us in the Scripture. But So what is it? We talked about the word... Invoking. What does it mean to invoke or an invocation? Definition I find helpful is to appeal to someone or something as an authority for support or action. That's what prayer is. We're invoking. We're looking to God. We're appealing to His authority, asking Him to take action on something, for something, on our behalf, looking for support recognizing Him as an authority in that. It's to call earnestly for, just like we see in the very beginning with Enosh, and at the time of Enosh. People begin to call upon the name of the Lord, invoke, appeal to His authority. It's like a dialogue as well. I think a lot of times when we think about prayer, we think about the prayers we can recite, 
We always think about us talking to God, and yes, those are our prayers. But what does our time in prayer look like? We believe that God speaks to His children today. The sheep know the voice of their shepherd. We know His Spirit is within us. So even in our prayer time, sometimes we just need to be quiet and listen too. It's part of our relationship with God. It's not as if we can just say magic words and God is obligated to respond. That isn't what this is about. This is about a relational dialogue between you and God. Pray to God. It's relational. It's almost like a conversation, but you're appealing to His authority. We see the example in Scripture and in life where people come before the king with their request. All kinds of requests. They might want justice. They might want mercy. They might need help with a situation. And they come before their king. That's an invoking of his authority. That's what prayer is. We come before our king. Now, in some countries, at some times, it was a high-risk venture to bring yourself before the king because if he didn't like you, he could end your life. Fortunately, we have a king where the Scripture says we can approach his throne with confidence. Hebrews teaches us that you and I can come before God with a sense of confidence. So even though we're not righteous in and of ourselves, we have a righteousness through Christ that allows us to access Him, to ask Him for things, to be like His children that come before Him requesting something of their Father. But I do want to just remind us that it isn't just a a formula where I speak and God is my genie in a lamp and grants my wishes. This is a relational dialogue that takes place between man and God. But certainly, He's the authority in this situation. There are lots of attempts out there to categorize prayer in different ways. You will recognize these, some of these. I'm not going to unpack them much because it's not necessarily helpful to our conversation today, but... We know there's all types of prayer. And hopefully you practice some of these. There's a prayer of faith. James talks about prayer and, prayer and faith makes a sick person well. Wow, I need some of that. I need some faith. Well, when we have a promise from God, something we're really believing for and believing in, we can pray in faith for something. There's prayers of agreement. In the morning when we gather before the services start, all the volunteers and staff and myself, we gather over here and we have a little time. We call huddle. You're invited. Anybody can show up to that. But one of the things we do towards the end after going over the details of the day is we pray together in agreement for the day. We pray in agreement. It's corporate prayer, the prayer of agreement, where we all join together in petitioning, invoking God, saying, God, Intervene on our behalf in this way. Help us minister to the people that are coming today. Guide us during worship. Help JR not to totally screw it up today. Those kinds of things. Let your presence be felt here. Let people feel loved when they come. We're calling on God to do that because we know in our own strength that's going to be insufficient to accomplish what we want to accomplish. So we call upon the name of the Lord in agreement. When we pray corporately, it's a prayer of agreement. Prayer of request. This is what we're familiar with. I need, I want, I have something. I'm requesting something. Prayer of thanksgiving, not just on a holiday, but every day. The Scripture talks about entering His courts with thanksgiving. I will enter His gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Should we sing it? No, we're not going to. Why? That's actually a Scripture. We come before Him in thankfulness. And in a way, that's sort of the antithesis of in a demanding way, in a taking for granted way. You're going to do what I want, but actually I'm thankful, God. I'm coming before you with a gratefulness. 
in my heart. We'll enter his courts with thanksgiving. Well, we pray, just thanking him at Thanksgiving. It's a great time to do that. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the, that the turkey didn't burn. Thank you for my church family, whatever. Whatever we're thanking God for, whether it be little thing or big thing. Prayers of thanksgiving. Prayers of worship. Prayer and worship are really closely related. Some of those words, when we're singing them, we're kind of praying them too. We're bringing it before God. We're asking Him for something. So, you know, we're praising Him and thanking Him for things, but we're also asking for things. Let your presence be with us. Spirit, break out. Petitioning God to do something amongst us. And even when we don't know the words, we can be praising God and praying to Him. I sometimes, when I don't know the words or there's silence in between songs or those kinds of things, I'm still wanting to keep myself in a position of prayer and worship before God. And God, thank you for this day. God, be exalted. May your name be lifted high in this place. God, I pray you be working in the hearts of people today during worship. God, I pray for this situation or that situation. We, we pray in our worship, but we pray worshipable things too, like, God, you be glorified. God, your name be praised. Tied closely with thanksgiving. Prayers of consecration. Not a very common thing. We don't use that word anyway. But we see lots of examples of this in the Old Testament and some today where something is prayed for to be dedicated for a purpose. You could maybe say that when we ordain an elder in the church, we're consecrating them, we're setting them apart for a purpose particularly. Something being dedicated to God. There were lots of items and sacrifices in the Old Testament and people that were consecrated to the Lord. They were set aside for His purposes. Maybe our baby dedications are a bit of a reflection of that. There are prayers where we dedicate things. Prayers of intercession. Praying, interceding on behalf of somebody else, trying to stand in the gap for somebody. Prayer in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Pray in tongues. Ooh. Lots of kinds of prayer in the Scripture. Lots of ways we bring ourselves before God. All things that you and I can be practicing and should be in our lives. Bringing ourselves before God. It isn't just up to some clergyman to do the praying. Prayer is your relationship with God. Imagine what your relationship with a spouse or a loved one would be, would be like if there were no dialogue. And perhaps you know what it's like when there's no dialogue going on in a relationship. Tension builds or misunderstanding happens. It's not that different from our relationship with God. We communicate, we pray, we ask. The fundamental component of our relationship with God is that communication. One thing I thought of when thinking about prayer is, does our, does our physical posture matter when we pray? We probably all grew up in a little bit different traditions. Maybe you grew up in this kind of a church. Maybe you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or no church at all. Perhaps you were part of an entirely different kind of faith. And in a lot of different groups, you see lots of different physical posturing during prayer. Well, does it matter how I pray? Should I hold my hands like this? Yes, because it points to heaven. And when I pray into my hands, it beams it to heaven. Point, see? So don't pray like this because it goes the other way. How do we pray? Does it matter if I hold my hands like this? Does it matter if I hold my hands like this? Does it matter if I hold my hands like this? Can I, should I hold my hands like this when I pray? Does it matter if I'm on my knees? Does it matter if I'm laying face down? Does it matter if I'm laying on my back? 
Can I pray underwater? I don't know. I wouldn't recommend it. Does it matter how I pray? Well, it's actually a good question because we see lots of examples in the Scripture about it, and it can affect how we view things sometimes. I'm going to unpack a few of them. King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? Now, David had just been significantly blessed, and he, and he walks in, apparently, to the tabernacle, and I could just see him just plopping in a chair and going, Who am I, O God, that you would bless me and my family like this? It was kind of one of those moments for David. But he sat. If David was okay sitting before God, I feel okay sitting. So right where you're sitting, you could pray, and it would be okay. God would hear you. So we see this example in the Scripture. Standing, Mark chapter 11, anywhere you stand praying, Jesus talking. He also later talks about standing on the corners of the street, although not in a good context. There's this idea that you would stand when you pray. Kneeling, Luke chapter 22. Jesus, and he withdrew, this is about Jesus, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, which is a highly accurate measurement of distance. I thought that was funny. That's in, that's in the Bible. A stone's throw is in the Bible. Okay, cool. He withdrew about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed. If Jesus knelt and prayed, I'm okay kneeling and praying. All right? I see an example of that. Another example of Jesus. Face to the ground. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. This is right before his crucifixion. He knew it was coming. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. A powerful prayer. Jesus was on his face. With hands lifted. Paul talks about, I desire that in every place the men would pray with lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Okay, what, what am I getting at here? Yes, we see examples of different physical posturing in prayer. We don't see anything about folding hands. It's not there. That be, There's several reasons that we fold our hands. There's one in the Jewish Talmud, which was uh, teachings of the rabbis and stuff. There's some indications of this possibility. Another very realistic and probable answer of why we do this is it developed in the Roman times. Uh, if you were captured, because lots of people were captured by the Romans, uh, this was your way of surrendering. You did this to the soldier. It's like waving the white flag of surrender. You know why they did this? To receive handcuffs. My hands are clasped. I'm not going to resist you. Handcuff me. So this and this, both are reflections of that. And so we use that a lot. We, we see the imagery of begging for something. I'm surrendering to you and begging you for mercy or more turkey or that Nintendo I want for Christmas. Those kinds of things. So is there, does that mean it's wrong to do this? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to do this? You want to do this? Go ahead. It doesn't matter. Here's what I think is important. That we can't, we don't want to get too flippant about it, like maybe I just did. Because what we do in the natural should reflect something in our heart. Okay? 
So if I get on my knees to pray, what am I doing? What am I, what's the condition of my heart when I do this? Uh, I'm submitting. I'm humbling myself. I feel, I feel awkward in front of you right now doing this because it's a humble position. And I'm over 40 and might not be able to get up. But this ought to reflect what's actually going on. I should mean it when I do it. When, I, when Jesus fell on his face to pray, was he doing that because he felt like God would answer his prayer if he laid on his face? No, he's desperate. It's a sign of his desperation and his agony. Maybe you've felt like that before. I know I have. I just want to lay on my rug and cry out to God in such desperation. What we do physically ought to reflect something that's actually happening in our heart. Otherwise, it's just hypocritical. Which brings me to a thought about superstition. What is superstition? So faith, because I believe something, ought to prompt me to action. Because I believe it. It ought to work out in my flesh. But superstition is something different. Superstition if you look at this definition here, is a belief or practice resulting from ignorance, fear of the unknown, trust in magic or chance, or a false conception of causation. That's what I want to focus in on, a false conception of causation. This false understanding of how something's going to happen. Okay, so let's take something, uh, some simple example. If I walk under the ladder, I'm going to have bad luck. Okay, that's simple. That's a false uh, concept of causation. That will cause me to have bad luck. That's false. It's a superstition. If I step on the crack, it might break my mom's back. Right? That's a false. That would be bad luck if I step on the crack, so I'm going to skip over it. Now you're all going to be watching me pace on this stage and see if I skip over these cracks. Well, the superstition is I have this false belief that this will cause something to happen if I do it. Well, the superstitious superstitious Thinking works its way into our prayer life, and we have to notice it. We do it with things like how we hold our hands. It can get in there. We do it with the words we say. And we begin to believe that if I... Now, this is just kind of a simple example, but you have to uh, broaden your thinking to maybe other deeper concepts in your own life where we get superstitious, is if I hold my hands this way, God has to respond to what I'm saying. If I didn't hold my hands that way, God might not respond to what I said. It's a false concept of causation. I think I can cause God to act on my behalf if. If I kneel, He'll listen. If I lay on my face, He'll listen. If I hold my hands like this, or this, or this, or this, He'll listen. Thinking that that action will make Him hear me. It's not that that God hears. God peels past the physical layer and looks at the heart of a man. So if I lift my hands to pray, or if I get on my knees and pray, it ought to reflect what's actually going on in my heart. So if you want to humble yourself before God, get on your knees. It's good and it's okay. I'd do it if I was you. And if you're in desperation, lay on the floor on your face as an expression of this is really what's in my heart. I'm actually grieving. I'm hurting. I'm crying out to you in desperation. I'm raising my hands in surrender or praise. God, be glorified. Thank you, God. Whatever your physical body does, do it sincerely. 
as an actual reflection of what's going on in your heart. But if you believe that those actions are actually what caused God to move on your behalf, that's superstition. And we end up doing that in our faith with certain things. You know, I probably, I mean, just a simple thing would, you know, maybe I should pray this week like this. Maybe I should stretch myself to do it a little different. I get in my ruts and my routines of prayer and action, thinking that by them specifically, somehow God's going to hear me. But there always needs to be a connection between the action and the heart where there's a true reflection of who we are coming before God. We don't want to be superstitious in our prayer. We want to be authentic. In the end, what do I mean? Hey, however you want to pray where you are physically, how you're postured physically, I think it's fine. I think primary importance is that you bring your heart before God in whatever fashion seems right. And if you want that to take a physical expression like get on your knees, then I would recommend you do it. If you want to come up here during worship and be on your knees, the Rogers family just moved away, but Sheena would come up here every once in a while and just be on her knees up here during worship. Why? She's expressing a humility and a calling out to God, particularly during a difficult time. I think that's healthy. I think we should do that. If you want to get out in the aisle and get on your knees during worship, don't be shy. And if I'm up here with my hands raised in worship and that makes you uncomfortable, you don't have to do it. But if you want to, I would invite you to. All of those things, we've got to reflect really what's going on in our heart. Okay. Jesus gave us a great model for prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Give you some context here. Chapter 6, verse 5 of Matthew. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus is always coming against hypocrisy, and we all have hypocrisy. We all have an ideal that we want to attain to, and sometimes we, sometimes we put it out there as if it's real, but we know that inside there's some conflict of interest. There's some things warring against us, and so we feel a little bit hypocritical. I'm not everything I think I should be. So we need to acknowledge that that's true, but he's coming against something where this hypocrisy is rampant amongst them looking like something on the outside, but not being it at all on the inside. When we pray, we don't want to be hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners. Here's the catch, that they might may be seen by others. What's the motivation of these people to pray, these hypocrites that Jesus is criticizing? They want to look good. They want to stand up in front of people and have these nice prayers or nice whatever they have to say, and the only reason they're doing it is to look like something to everybody around them. There's a hypocrisy there. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's he getting at here? If You, you need to be able to go into your room where nobody can see and no one's going to know and you're not doing it for anybody but God and yourself. Just between you and God. There's no hypocrisy able to work its way in. It's just you and him. Okay, we could get superstitious about this and say, then you should only ever pray by yourself in your room. Well, that that doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. But what is Jesus getting at? This needs to be a private thing. There needs to be something authentic about it, not something done in front of people to look like something. When you pray, and I think it draws attention too to the relational aspect of this, just you and God. You do it in secret, he rewards what's done in secret. Why? Because you didn't do it for your own glory, you didn't do it to look like something to everybody else. 
You did it just between you and God. And God honors that. And there's wisdom in that. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Uh, the NIV says pagans. For they think that by their they think that they will be heard for their many words. There's a couple different concepts here. First, there is just the actual Gentile or pagan culture around them, the worship of the Greek gods, the Roman gods. You know, there's a lot of the repetitive kind of chanting or babbling, they would say, as part of the prayer. I think the idea, though, really is ultimately that we aren't heard by our elaborate words or our quantity of words. If I repeat my prayer a hundred times, then God will hear me. If I, re- if I do it 99, He's not going to respond. This idea that quantity of words and amount and length of time. We do the same thing with sermons. JR preaches for three hours today. It's going to be really good, right? Nobody got excited about that. Somehow that God is going to honor the length of prayer that we do. It's not it at all. If, that's a dis- if there's a disconnect there from our heart, you received your reward. You got lots of prayer in. That was about it. But we want to be authentic. So then, do we, are we going to be superstitious about that as well? Like, if I really have something I want to pray, pray about at length and it takes me a long time to do it, did I suddenly fall out of the will of God by having this long prayer? No, that's not the point. You're not heard because it's long. It just ought to be an actual reflection of what's in your heart. Some of you have a lot to say, and it's okay if it takes you a while to say it to God. That's okay. That's not necessarily the point. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How many of you grew up memorizing this? A few of you. Shreya was afraid she was going to have to pray it at the end of the service today and she couldn't remember all of it. So I had to refresh my memory because I grew up in the Catholic tradition and that's how I memorized it. The wording is a little bit different than in this ESV Bible here. It's a common prayer. It's a prayer that we sometimes recite. So we talk sometimes about what it means to be liturgical or have a liturgy. It's where you do something in a repeated pattern. Some churches are liturgical. To where you go, the service looks very the same every week. Or they fo- and they follow a certain pattern. And nothing wrong with that. I don't have any problem with that. And so we use prayers sometimes liturgically, like this one, where we will actually, word for word, pray this as a prayer. And I think that's good. I think that's healthy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think one of the risks that we have in all areas of our faith is we get into that rut where we pray something so many times that it loses its meaning. Uh, at Thanksgiving dinner, not this year, but in years gone by or Christmas, my mom's side of the family is Catholic. And so when we go to Thanksgiving dinner, we have a Catholic prayer of grace. You know what the Catholic prayer of grace is? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Anyone else know that one? Anyone else grow up with that one? A few hands. Okay, is there something wrong with reciting the same prayer every night at dinner? No. Absolutely not. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I just have to mean it. Bless us, O Lord. Do I mean that? Yes. And these your gifts? Yes. Which I am about to receive from thy bounty, you provided? Yes. I'm in agreement with that. Through Christ, our Lord. Yes, you are our Lord, and it's from you. Amen. So be it. I agree. I agree with that prayer. Can you do that? I think what happens, though, is we get in a routine, and I think it's true with this prayer as well. You know, in, in a similar situation, we prayed the rosary. And when you prayed the rosary, you said the Our Father, this prayer. And I think, you know, I don't remember how many times now we had to say it within the rosary. Again, is praying the Our Father word for word wrong somehow? Absolutely not. I think you should. I do. I actually do. When I, if, I'm, if I'm flat and down and don't know what to pray, don't know what to preach, don't know how to handle a situation, uh, I have certain go-to psalms, but I also have this. And I'll just, I'll just, I mean, do you know, you know what I'm talking about when you're just sitting there and you're like, you can't even pray. You're just like, ugh. And I'll start here. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I just start priming the pump. This is true. These words are true. This is what I believe. This is actual. This is my reality. Because I mean it. That's what I think is important. Just mean it. Even if you pray liturgical prayers on a regular basis, just be sure you mean it. But there's another way to look at this passage. And I think Jesus gives us a great framework and a number of things that we can look at to remind ourselves in our prayer life how we're praying, how we're approaching God. Great concepts in our prayer life. Jesus taught us how to pray. And this is what he used. And it's very helpful. So let's unpack it a little bit. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Probably biggest key of the whole thing is number one, our Father. Is God your Father? Is God your Father? The way we approach God is because He has adopted us as sons and daughters. He has given us a great gift. He's brought us into His family by His precious blood, and we have access to Him because of that relationship. There's no other way. He is our Father. He's not just the creator of the universe, or just the king, or the judge, or the just one, and the source of all good, he's actually my father too. He's my father. And he uses the scripture repeatedly to demonstrate that's who he is to us. Slow to anger, rich in love. He is our father. So when we pray, no matter what we're praying, we know that we're coming before him in that posture, having that position as the son or the daughter praying to their father. Our father, you are my father. Important concept in prayer. Who is in heaven? He's not an idol. He's not on the earth. He's not, he's not what can be seen or touched. He's above and beyond. Supreme. Separate from this creation. Hallowed be your name. Revered. Holy. Powerful. Hallowed be your name. This idea of reverence of God is so, I think, important. He is our Father. He loves us. You can go to Him at any time, and He's to be respected and revered. 
Okay? He, he's not the genie in the bottle God. He will judge the living and the dead. It's a powerful, he's a powerful God who loves and is to be revered. It draws attention to this eternal glory of who God is, and he's meant to be honored. First, he's our father. He loves us, and he is worthy of respect and honor and glory. What a great way to start a prayer. Maybe you don't use those words, but I certainly would recommend approaching him in the same way, as your father, supreme and revered. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Simply praying that, God, your kingdom come. Your authority, your reign, the people you are bringing into your family, this whole concept of your kingdom, let it come amongst us, God. We want to be a part of it. We want it to happen amongst us. Your will be done. Just like Jesus falling on the ground and praying, if it's possible, nonetheless, not my will, but your will. Who are we, who are we putting first here? The Father, the ruler of the universe, who is in heaven, and that his kingdom would come, not mine. That his will would be done, not mine. I'm submitting to him. A great concept when we're praying to God. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so we shift gears a little bit here. We go from this magnificent picture of a glorious God, eternal and Father, and his kingdom being established on the earth and his will being done, and then we focus right in on my little world. My need. I need bread. I'm in need today. We can go to God for what we need. And He knows we need. Give us this day our daily bread. That word daily can be bread for tomorrow. It could be translated, and give us today our bread for tomorrow. But the idea of now, our present, I have need. I can come before God and ask Him to provide. He's the great provider. All The whole world belongs to Him. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, whether it's financial, whether it's health. Give us this day our daily bread. God, you see my one little microcosm need. My one little world matters. Often we fail, and we, we fail to come before God in prayer because that, our attitude is, He doesn't care about my daily bread. But not according to Jesus. Jesus actually instructs you to pray for, to Him for those needs. There's a focus on our present there. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We're always praying for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. Confess our sins. We, we bring them out in the light. We go to God. We say, forgive us my debts. Not, not necessarily financial, but the ways that I've transgressed. Some translations say transgression. Uh, this idea that I have sinned. And so I'm, I'm reflecting on my life. I'm praying for what I need today. I look behind me and see my past. Lord, forgive me as I've forgiven others. So important. Jesus talks about it right after this passage of Scripture saying, if you don't forgive, He's not going to forgive. What's the idea there? If, if, you have, if you've done some of the most horrible things and God has forgiven you of that, then you can forgive others of some of the most horrible things. Just like He's extended forgiveness to you, He expects you to expe- extend forgiveness for others. And he, we pray that. Forgive us our sins. Help us to forgive others as well. There's a mental health concept right there. That whole idea of forgiveness bringing it before God, asking Him to heal, but also letting go of the ways we've hurt, others have hurt us and us reaching out to help fix the hurt we've done in others. Focus on the past a little bit there, some reflection. Great thing to do in prayer, reflect. Where have I been lately? What have I been doing? 
How's my heart? What am I thinking? What am I believing? What am I doing? Help me, Lord, with that. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we pray for God's deliverance. We, we, we live in a d- difficult, broken world. And we're constantly, that, that word temptation is both, is both trial and enticement. And both things are true. Like there's a, the temptation, you know, we usually use the word with the actual um, temptation to sin. Like be lured into doing something wrong. But there all, also is a trial on us. It tries our soul. So we're in a difficult situation where we're being pressed on every side, we're being tempted, there's a trial there. So it has that, that meaning, and we run into this conflict where James talks about God doesn't tempt man. So we end up in this conflict with, if God doesn't tempt mankind, how is it he would lead us not into temptation? I want to read you a um, passage from... A sermon from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a preacher in the mid-19th century. This is a little bit hard to follow, I'm just warning you. And I had to read it like two or three times because it's that old English way of uh, phrasing things. But it's very powerful, and hopefully you can catch a little bit of it here. And I'm, I'm going to try and skip some things so as to not take too much time with it. But Spurgeon was a fantastic preacher. I mean, he's, you know, he'll be in history and is well known as, as a, great, a great preacher. And I love some of his stuff. And he talks about this exact issue here. A great many persons have been troubled by that passage in James where it expressly said, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he, tempteth he any man. It has been found very difficult to reconcile that express declaration of the apostle with this prayer of our Savior. And some good but very ignorant men have gone the length of altering our Lord's words. I have heard of one who won't always say, leave us not in temptation, a most unwarrantable and unjustifiable alteration of Holy Scripture. Because sometimes a learned minister ventures in all honesty and discretion to give a more correct translation of the original, can this justify a foolish, unlettered man in altering the original itself and perverting the sense of a passage? There is an end to Scripture altogether if license be given to alter its teaching according to our will. To the presumptuous, I'm sorry, to teach perfect wisdom how to speak is too great a task to be ventured upon by any but the presumptuous and foolish. When our version is incorrect, then it is a duty to present the proper rendering if one be able to find it out. But to give translations out of our whimsied heads without having been taught in the original tongue is impertinence indeed. And he goes on a little bit later to say, well, says one, if God does not tempt men, how can it be proper to pray, lead us not into temptation? Dear brethren, do but notice the text does not say, tempt us not. If it did, then we would, there would be a difficulty. It does not say, Lord, tempt us not, but it says, lead us not into temptation. Here's the explanation he gives. And I think I shall very rapidly be able to show you that there is a vast difference between leading into temptation and actually tempting. God tempts no man. 
For God to tempt in the sense of enticing to sin were inconsistent with his nature and altogether contrary to his known character. But for God to lead us into those conflicts with evil, which we call temptations, is not only possible, but usual. Full often, the great captain of salvation leads us by his providence to battlefields where we must face the fell array of evil and conquer through the blood of the Lamb. And this leading into temptation is by divine grace overruled for our good, since by being tempted we grow strong in grace and patience. Our God and Father may, pos- may lead us, I'm sorry, our God and Father may for wise ends, which shall ultimately subserve his own glory and our profit, lead us into positions where Satan, the world, and the flesh may tempt us. And the prayer is to be understood in the sense of a humble self-distrust which shrinks from the conflict. There is courage here, for the suppliant calmly looks the temptation in the face and dreads only the evil which it may work in him. But there is also a holy fear, a sacred self-suspicion, a dread of contact with sin in any degree. The sentiment is not inconsistent with all joy when the diverse temptations do come. It is akin, and here's the third time we've seen this scripture, it is akin to the Savior's, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me which did not for a moment prevent his drinking of the cup even to its dregs. I hope you caught in there some of his teaching on it, but also that even in Jesus' prayer and his submission to the Father, he drank that cup. Even if this cup could pass, let it, but not my will, your will. And what did he do? He still drank the cup even to its dregs. But also he explains very well there how it could be that God could lead us not into temptation and that our cry to God would be that even though we know we want to grow and Scripture says we should embrace our trials because we know it helps us grow, we also just ask God, spare us. Lead us not into temptation. Spare us from those terrible things that we may have to endure. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations, perhaps yours says the evil one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. And 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we do have an evil that works against us. And we ask God for his guidance with that. What a great format to pray, that prayer. So many clues about how to approach God and ways of speaking to God and attitudes. Two things I want to touch on quick and I'll wrap up. Number one is the words in Jesus' name, like so many of us wrap up our prayers. That's an invoking. It's calling upon the name of God. I'm asking on the authority of Jesus Christ, hear my prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. They aren't magic words. We can't be superstitious about it. We sometimes act like maybe God won't hear our prayer if we don't say that at the end. That's not the point. The idea of putting that at the end of a prayer comes from the idea that whatever you pray in my name, you will receive. So then we say, well, we'll pray in your name. We'll say, in Jesus' name at the end. That's not the point. The point is that we're calling upon the name of Jesus to hear the prayer because we are in the name of Jesus, because we've been adopted into his family, because we have been We are ones that bear his name, in that name. We're calling upon that name. There's a story in the book of Acts where there's some Jewish exorcists. So they weren't believers, they were Jews, they weren't Christians. 
they were doing an exorcism on a guy that was possessed by a demon. And they had saw that the Apostle Paul had done great works in the name of Jesus. So they try to cast this demon out of this guy. There's seven of them. In the name of Jesus, of whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the demon talks back. And he says, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of. Who are you? And he beat them all up, and they went out of the house, bleeding and naked, it says. One guy, possessed by a demon, whooped up on these exorcists. But what were they doing? They were trying to invoke the name by just using the name. But they weren't submitted to the name. They didn't carry the authority of the name. They hadn't been adopted into that family name. So they were just trying to exercise a superstition to get rid of this demon. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, those aren't ma- we've got to remind ourselves when we do that, it's not that they're magic words, it's that we are in His name and we are appealing to the authority of His name for our prayer to be heard. Lastly, the word amen. Amen is found clear back in the book of Numbers, and it sounds just like it did in the Hebrew. And that word has been coming down through the generations, however you pronounce it. Amen, amen. And it just means, so be it. Let it be done. I am in agreement. So when the preacher says something we really agree with, y'all go, amen, which I didn't hear any today, so hopefully you're still in agreement. (laughs) And why do we end our prayers with amen? It's not a magic word that makes our prayer be heard. It's us expressing something real inside of us that says, yes, so be it. I'm in agreement with this. Bam. So when you pray, because I'm assuming you do, just remember these things these concepts of prayer. When you say in Jesus' name, remember why you're saying it. And when you put amen at the end of your prayer, or when you say amen to something someone has said, remember why you're saying it. You're in agreement. Would you stand? We're going to pray. Does anybody have any guesses what prayer we're going to pray? No one? I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to get those words back up there. We're going to pray this prayer together. This is called a prayer of agreement. We're all praying together. And we're going to pray out loud. And we're going to pray the original words. Because I think it's good. And I'm going to wrap it up with, in Jesus' name, and... Okay, you're with me. I got it. All right. But seriously, we need to, we need to mean what we say when we pray these things. You can pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, you guys. Thanks.